Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's Saturday night, the 2nd of March, 1935 in Sydney, and there's no shortage of screen entertainments. Gary Cooper's starring in Lives of a Bengal Lancer at the Prince Edward Cinema. Joan Crawford and Clark Gable are in Chained at the St James. And for homegrown laughs, Burt Bailey can be seen at the Civic in Ken Hall's latest hit, Grandad Rudd. But if you're after stage sophistication, there's literally only one show in town and for one night only. It's a comic satire called The Sybarites and it's on at 8pm at the Kursaal Theatre in Kent Street. From English playwright H. Dennis Bradley, The Sybarites is set in an old English country house during a weekend party hosted by an author. When first produced in London in 1929, a reviewer for the stage said, not disapprovingly, quote, The characters in the play are cocktail-drinking amorists, their gods, sex and desire, whose, quote, dialogue possesses a sort of suggestive frothy effervescent smartness. Tonight's production stars a mixture of actors who are well-known in Sydney's small independent theatre scene and a handful of relatively new players. A reviewer for The Sun newspaper is in the audience and he thinks it's pretty good, even if the usually reliable Henry Massent seems unsure of his character and his dialogue. He thinks that Joan Murray does well and that Belle Burns is particularly vivacious. But for The Sun reviewer, the standout is a new player who at times commands the stage even though he's only in a supporting role. This man's name is Brian Abbott. I'm Michael Adams and this is part two of the eight-part Forgotten Australia series The Mysteries of Mystery Island. Future installments will be on general release on Mondays but you can hear the whole story right now by becoming a Forgotten Australia supporter for just a few bucks a month. 
Your support will help me keep making the podcast, and it'll also give you access to photo galleries, bonus episodes, and the full audiobook of Australia's Sweetheart. To support Forgotten Australia, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia, or click this same link in your show notes. George Rickard Bell taking the stage name Brian Abbott was nothing out of the ordinary. A stage name allowed you a fresh start, a new persona, and even a way to avoid family shame at a time when acting wasn't considered a real profession by a lot of people. But George Rickard Bell perhaps had another reason to become Brian Abbott. It wouldn't do to have a pissed-off punter come to a production and argue about the pounds they'd lost when they'd trusted him as George Rickard Bell, self-proclaimed turf director of the Queensland Racetrack. Two weeks after The Sybarites, Brian was in another production at the Kersal Theatre called The Case of Lady Camber. This time, it was the Labour Daily newspaper that singled him out above the rest of the cast for his splendid acting. George's efforts and the acclaim they received might even have impressed his parents when they arrived back from England in April 1935. Dr and Mrs Rickard Bell had been away nearly four years. They came back with son Richmond, but Hal stayed in England. The Rickard Bells took a place in DY, and photos from this time show them gathered on the front steps, one big happy family. While the Rickard Bells would always call George, George, and still do, to avoid confusion, I'm going to call him Brian from here on in, because this is how he was known to the rest of Australia. Brian's parents, Harry and Ali, loved his new wife Grace, who seemed to be a steadying influence on their sometimes wayward son. There was more joy in the Rickard Bell family in early 1935 when Brian and Grace welcomed a new addition. This was Mike, a blue cattle dog. As the story would later appear in the Australian Women's Weekly, Brian had seen Mike in Hyde Park on a Friday night. The dog had followed him through the busy city streets. Brian had gone to one of his advertising lectures for two hours. When he came out... Mike was still there. This display of fidelity touched Brian so much that he took the dog home. No doubt when Brian's parents had returned to Sydney, they'd brought with them a copy of his brother Hal's novel, Changing Colours, which was just about to be published in England. When Brian read his brother's book, he would have encountered this description of the South Pacific's allure and danger. Quote, The beauty is there. Nothing more gorgeous exists than an opal-flecked green tropical isle set in a sea of sapphire. But there is poison in the flowers, shark-toothed reefs in the sea, madness in the sun. It wouldn't be long before Brian Abbott would experience both sides of paradise, on screen and in real life. Brian Abbott was doing well on stage, but by 1935, the movies were where it was at for young aspiring actors in Australia. Local talkies had gotten off to a shaky start in Melbourne in 1930. Five years later, Sydney was firmly the centre of production for the burgeoning industry. And things seemed set to boom, with the New South Wales government about to introduce a quota system for local films. This led to an optimism in the industry unseen since the pre-war days when Australia had pioneered silent film production. Moreover, local producers now had an eye on the international market. So it was in October 1935 that it was announced Hollywood film star Helen Twelvetrees would come down under to take the lead role in horse racing drama Thoroughbred. This cine sound production would be directed by Ken Hall 
who'd had recent hits with On Our Selection, The Squatter's Daughter, The Silence of Dean Maitland and Grandad Rudd. Brian Abbott was to launch his film career with a bit part in Thoroughbred. That he got his start here, in a track movie, was a funny turn of events given his past as a real-life, colourful racing identity. Though Brian's role in Thoroughbred was small, he made an impression on Ken Hall. And that impression, the director would later say, was that Brian had a cattle dog named Mike who loved him to bits and would do anything he commanded. In the mid-1980s, Ken Hall would tell Brian's grandson that he actually hadn't wanted Brian for his next movie, but he had no choice but to take him because he wanted Mike. Such a claim has to be taken with a pound of salt because Ken cast Brian in the lead, and Ken Hall was too savvy a filmmaker and producer to risk an expensive production on a bloke just because he had a clever pet. In any event, in April 1936, Brian Abbott was news as the star of the kangaroo drama that would see release as Orphan of the Wilderness. Isn't that a joey down there? Wonder what he's doing out alone. Come on, Miller. Come on, oh, you lovely little thing. Tom Hinton wouldn't hurt a little fella like you. Come on. Ken Hall originally envisaged Orphan as a 50-minute supporting feature that would screen with Thoroughbred but he soon realised its potential and he expanded it to a standalone feature that would run 80 minutes. To do this, he boosted the romantic subplot, which was again not a move you'd make if you didn't have confidence in your leading man. Pre-publicity was also to feature Brian, and he'd be portrayed as a rugged newcomer. The Daily Telegraph on the 18th of April said, quote, In his 27 years, Brian Abbott has managed to gain vast experience of Australia. He returned from northern Queensland in time to have a small part in Thoroughbred. Brian also confesses to jackarooing, going to sea, humping the bluey, and extensive training with repertory companies. Brian was to star opposite 21-year-old Gwen Munro. She'd done stage work for J.C. Williamson and in 1934 won the Australian section of Paramount's International Search for Beauty competition. The prize for Gwen had been a trip to Hollywood and a background part in the Search for Beauty film that had starred Buster Crabbe and Ida Lupino. While Orphan was in pre-production, Thoroughbred had its midnight premiere at Sydney's Mayfair Theatre. By then, American star Helen Twelvetrees was back in Hollywood and on her slow, long slide to a tragic end. But Ken Hall's new discoveries... Brian Abbott and Gwen Munro were on hand to help add glamour to the premiere, with the director introducing them to an audience that included Sydney's social, civic, business and media elite. So it was that Brian Abbott, schoolboy runaway, outback jackaroo, steamer sailor, deadbeat deserting husband and father, canoe adventurer, racing fraudster, advertising copywriter and stage performer was treated like a movie star before a single frame of Orphan of the Wilderness had been shot. While Brian Abbott and Gwen Munro were treated like stars, it was clear from the start that Orphan of the Wilderness's real stars would be the animals, led by the title character, a kangaroo named Chut. The script based on a short story by Australian author Dorothy Hewitt, had this joey orphaned by hunters. Chut is adopted and named by Brian's station owner, Tom Henton. Once Chut has grown up, he and Tom like nothing better than a bit of play boxing. But boozed up shearers make Chut fight for real. 
When one of these brutes burns Chut with a cigarette, the Roo lashes out in self-defense with kicks that nearly kill the bastard. But the Shearers blame Chut for everything. So, to avoid his pet being put down, Tom entrusts Chut and another Roo named Blue Baby to circus owner Shorty McGee. Tom's would-be circus rider girlfriend Margot, played by Gwen Munro, tries to keep an eye out for the ruse. Too late, Margot realises that Shorty McGee is a drunken sadist who relishes using his whip on his animal attractions. After Blue Baby's killed while fleeing a beating, Chut goes berserk on this villain before escaping with a vigilante posse after him. That sets the stage for an outback showdown between these creeps and Tom, Margot, Cattle Dog Mike and all of their mates. Orphan of the Wilderness began filming in mid-May at Bondi's Cine Sound Studio, where Ken Hall had built a huge and elaborate bushland set in which the movie's extraordinary opening scenes were shot. This sequence, running some 15 minutes, was visual poetry as, after being orphaned, little Joey Chutt dices with an eagle, a snake, and is then rebuffed by a mob of kangaroos. Exterior homestead scenes were also shot at the studio, with Brian a relaxed and comfortable presence on screen. These sequences also featured Cattle Dog Mike, and they really did show the bond between the mutt and his master. The Sydney Morning Herald's women's supplement would report, quote, Mike himself is a perfect combination of intelligence and obedience. His scenes with leading man, Brian Abbott, who is also his master, need very little rehearsal and very few retakes. He thoroughly enjoys his film work, but objects to Mr. Abbott boxing with Chut. He finds it hard to control a little anxious whine from his position under the veranda seat when these scenes are being shot. Production of Orphan was accompanied by a steady stream of such human and animal interest newspaper articles. Readers of the Labour Daily learned that Brian's gold fillings showed black on screen, so they had to be painted white each day. Quote, He wouldn't mind that if the white paint would only stay on instead of coming off and mixing with his food at mealtimes. The Sydney Mail ran a two-page pictorial feature headlined Making an Australian Talkie. This piece would trot out the lines about Brian Abbott's background and add this, quote, He owned a racehorse too once and lost him on a bet in typical Australian style. That was at least partly true. Back in Brisbane, Brian had been reported as importing a racehorse from New South Wales, suggesting that he had even greater plans for his track career. But did the Sydney newspapers know of his other turf exploits? It's almost certain that they didn't. Truth's expose of the turf director had merited only a modest article in Sydney's The Sportsman. That had been two years ago, and the article had only referred to the scallywag by the name of George Rickard. It wouldn't be until much later in 1936 that newspapers reported that Brian Abbott and George Rickard Bell were one and the same. Even so, articles were never to link Brian Abbott to the turf director. Filming of Orphan of the Wilderness continued at Camden, with several carloads of cast and crew making the trip from Sydney, one vehicle towing a special cage trailer for the kangaroos. The Adelaide News reported that Chut escaped as the unit passed through Campbelltown. Quote, Traffic was disorganised and horses bolted. A boy on a bicycle tried to stop the escaping Roo, but it leapt over his head. Eventually, it was stopped by a priest. If only the cameras had been on to catch this chaos, assuming, of course, it really happened like that and wasn't embellished or invented wholesale for publicity purposes. 
Back at the Cine Sound Studios, big circus sets had been built and these scenes were shot for a week, including the fight between Chut and Shorty McGee. The papers reported that Harry Adby, the animal trainer playing Shorty, got a claw to the eye that left him in pain, but he managed to carry on. There were more injuries filming at Burragarong Valley, which was later drowned to make Warragamba Dam, where the final big fights saw Brian and supporting villain Ron Whelan go at it a little too enthusiastically. Brian came away with a hurt leg while Ron was nursing an injured jaw. At least, that's what publicity stories and photos had readers believe. Then, on the way back to Sydney, according to the Adelaide News, the cast and crew were caught in a wild storm. Quote, Fog and heavy rain made the trip up the pass a nightmare journey. The truck containing the sound gear lost a wheel twice and finally capsized, injuring three of the cast. Director Ken Hall had reportedly hoped to shoot the film in 32 days. It had taken 45 but he'd ended up with something good in the can. And, whether he thought so or not, he'd also discovered something good in Brian Abbott. I've been fortunate enough to watch Orphan of the Wilderness recently, and it holds up better than any other Australian film I've seen from this period. Part of this has to do with Brian Abbott, who's believable, relaxed, and very appealing on screen. There's no doubt he was far more polished than Errol Flynn was in his first effort. Three years earlier... In The Wake of the Bounty, made by Charles Chevelle, Errol had made his film debut and he'd been as wooden as the ship. Sir, as an officer, I caution you. As a man, I ask you to bear more with the men. Six months was too long at Tahiti. Yet, he'd found his cinematic charisma and his acting chops and recently become a star in Hollywood's Captain Blood. It's the world against us and us against the world. Those of you in favour of these articles, raise your right hands and say aye! aye! On the 18th of April, 1936, the Daily Telegraph article announcing Brian Abbott had been cast in Orphan of the Wilderness appeared right beside a big ad for this Warner Brothers swashbuckling hit. It showed Errol Flynn in his Captain Blood costume, one hand on his sword, the other gripping Olivia de Havilland, with the tagline that read... A romantic thrill for every woman. It's not hard to picture Brian Abbott glancing from the article to the advertisement and thinking the exact words that would form the chorus to Australian Crawl's hit, Errol. You know, about giving everything to be just like him. Brian's next picture might just be the one to make him a high seas romantic hero. The Labor Daily's headline on the 14th of July read, Mystery picture on Isle, secret Pacific location. The name of this mystery new movie would be Mystery Island. Mystery Island was initially hyped as the first Australian sound picture to be shot outside the Commonwealth. Newspaper articles said the exotic location was 1,000 miles away and that it couldn't be reached directly by steamer. So the big cast and crew and their £10,000 worth of equipment would go ashore on a yacht called the Black Witch. This boat would serve also as the production base. It'd have accommodations and be fitted with laboratories, sound and projection rooms. It's not known whether this was actually the plan which then fell through or just publicity guff while the producers firmed up their actual location of Lord Howe Island. What was certain from the very first was that Brian Abbott was to be the leading man. 
His brief bio was again rolled out for newspaper articles, though this time his new career was compared with his past occupations. On the 16th of July, the Sun newspaper said, quote, He got a great kick out of the pictures. He had been a jackaroo and a sailor, but he had never had such fun as working in the films. This time around, Brian's leading lady would be 21-year-old Jean Angela Laidley Mort. This green-eyed blonde society girl had played repertory theatre and was the great-granddaughter of wool pioneer Thomas Sutcliffe Mort. For the screen, she'd be using the name Jean Laidley, and we'll call her that from here on in. Mystery Island's producer was Jack Bruce via his company Commonwealth Film Laboratories. While this business had been around for a decade, this would be its first talkie feature. Jack had apparently studied production methods in Hollywood and knew what he was about. Mystery Island's director, Joe Lippman, had made a silent feature back in 1918. In 1934, he'd produced The Man They Could Not Hang, which was a commercial and critical flop and sadly marked the end of Raymond Longford's career as a director. Cinematographer George Malcolm had worked on The Man They Could Not Hang, along with The Squatter's Daughter for Ken Hall and director Beaumont Smith's Splendid Fellows. The script had been written by Captain T.D. Band's father, who was a popular radio personality. While the people behind Mystery Island weren't big names, this was to be a professional production. In addition to Brian Abbott and Jean Laidley, the cast's other notable name was 30-year-old Leslie Hay Simpson. He was the son of a solicitor and younger brother to a prominent barrister. Tall, solidly built and darkly handsome, Leslie had followed his father and his brother into the law and become a solicitor in 1929. That was his day job. But by night, since the early 1930s, Leslie had become one of the best-known leading men in the small Sydney theatre scene. Like Brian, he was often singled out as a natural and talented actor. In late 1933, he got his big cinema break. Under his screen name, Hay Simpson, Leslie was, decades before Mick Jagger and Heath Ledger, Australia's first talkie, Ned Kelly, in the film When the Kellys Rode. Shot in the Blue Mountains over the summer of 1933-34, Leslie and the other actors playing the Kellys all grew big bushranger beards, which made them stand out on the streets of Katoomba. That they were playing outlaws also made them heroes to the boys of the town. And that was part of the problem. Producer Harry Southwell went ahead with the movie despite the New South Wales Chief Secretary, Frank Chaffee, who had responsibility for film censorship, continuing the department's long-standing policy of banning bushranger movies because they might inspire youngsters to become crooks. Harry Southwell was well aware he was taking the risk that his film might not be seen in its biggest market. That was because in 1920 he'd made The Kelly Gang. That had actually gotten around the ban by including a warning in a title card before the film. But Harry's 1923 effort, when the Kellys were out, fell afoul of the ban. Maybe in 1933, he thought it was 50-50 that he'd get when the Kellys rode past the chief secretary. As part of the pre-release publicity in March 1934, Leslie Hay Simpson did a radio interview with 2UW in which he stayed in character. Hearing Ned Kelly speak over the airwaves was surely a novelty for wireless listeners. But for New South Wales fans, it would be all they heard for 14 years. That's because when the Kelly's Road was banned in New South Wales in May 1934, though it did see release in other states to no acclaim and to poor box office. 
So, in Mystery Island, Leslie Hay Simpson was getting a second chance at cinematic glory. He'd call himself Desmond Hay for this role, but we'll keep calling him Leslie Hay Simpson because that's how he was most commonly referred to in the newspapers. Mystery Island was to start filming in September. As with Orphan of the Wilderness, there was as much PR as producers could muster. A 25th of July Australian Women's Weekly article described Brian as being, quote, born with a thirst for adventure. His truly epic canoeing odyssey didn't rate a mention. Given that Mystery Island was about a shipwreck, this should have been a publicity focus. But the problem was, if Brian drew attention to his canoeing daring do under the name of George Rickard, it'd risk Queensland readers joining the dots to him as the turf director. Right at this time in Hollywood, the first stories about Errol Flynn's days as a blackbirder in Papua New Guinea were starting to trickle out. Australia's biggest star as a native recruiter, a modern-day slaver, well, that was absolute hooey, said Smith Weekly. But if Sydney papers heard tell of a movie star who'd taken advantage of Australian punters and bookies during the Depression, well, that might sound a bit more believable, and further, it would be easily checked. Being exposed as a con man who'd ripped off decent cobbers might be enough to put the stink on Brian Abbott. So it was best he kept his trap shut about his canoeing adventure. Even so, the Sydney Morning Herald did get more specific about his maritime career with an article that referred to his luck in leaving both the Canowna and the Christina Fraser before they sank. The article included this quote, As Mr Abbott didn't believe in setting for the third time to prove that fate was against him, he promptly decided that there were other adventurous jobs to be had which didn't carry the risk of drowning. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. In late August 1936, Mystery Island's location was finally announced in the press. It wasn't actually outside the Commonwealth, off steamer routes or 1,000 miles from Sydney, but Lord Howe Island was certainly exotic and exciting. Of course, Brian Abbott had already known this for a month or more, long enough at least for him to come up with the idea for his wildest adventure yet. Once the relocation of Mystery Island was announced, newspapers ran a few articles on preparations for the production. Producer Jack Bruce said they'd also be shooting a colour documentary about the island, which would be another first for Australia. But rather than berthing on a yacht that would also have a film laboratory and a projection theatre, Mystery Island's cast and crew would stay in a Lord Howe Island guest house and all processing would have to be done back in Sydney. Not that newspapers pointed this out, but it meant any footage, black and white or colour, wouldn't be available as dailies. Director Joe Lippman and the rest of the crew would have to be confident they'd got what they needed because it wasn't like they were going to be going back to Lord Howe for reshoots. To help with this a little, they did have an audio playback unit, so the filmmakers could at least listen to each day's dialogue to check for flubs or interference. The production would be taking three and a half tons of equipment with them on the steamer Marinda. This included a very elaborate first aid kit, 
which was necessary because Lord Howe, though settled for over a century, still didn't have a hospital or even a resident doctor. Mystery Island's crew at least didn't have to worry about taking set building materials. The only dwellings in the film would be palm shelters, and these would be constructed by Lord Howe Islanders, a few of whom might also be cast as extras. Mystery Island's wardrobe would be similarly simple, because each character would only wear the clothes that he or she washed up in. Yet, that didn't mean that Brian Abbott and Jean Laidley couldn't promote the film with a fashion shoot, which appeared in the Sunday Sun and Guardian the weekend before they set sail. Among the outfits from Farmer's Department Store, Jean posed in a yachting suit of navy sharkskin, while Brian donned a toweling beach robe over a swimming suit. The twosome were a little more gussied up a few days later for the stage, screen and radio ball at the New Palais Royal. The Sydney Morning Herald would report that this gala affair was just like a Hollywood party. And indeed, the big attraction was rising Hollywood actor Victor Jory, who was then in Sydney filming the Zane Grey western Wrangle River. At the ball, Jean Laidley looked lovely in a gown of ice blue taffeta, while Brian's wife Grace impressed in a lily-of-the-valley satin gown with a large shoulder spray of daffodils. What her husband wore wasn't reported, but a tux is a good bet. What was noted about Brian Abbott was that he was able to distinguish himself from all the other movie actors by having a seat at the two most spectacularly decorated tables. The Orphan of the Wilderness Party sat around a centrepiece that recreated the Australian bush right down to a working waterfall. And when Brian wanted a change of scenery and company, he could hold court at the even more impressive Mystery Island Table, which offered a dramatic volcanic landscape with palm trees bathed in an eerie green light. While a charity function for sick kitties, the ball also served as an unofficial farewell party for the Mystery Island unit. Their next stop was Lord Howe Island. Lord Howe Island was discovered in mid-February 1788, just three weeks after the settlement that would become Sydney started at Port Jackson. Unlike mainland Australia, Lord Howe wasn't inhabited. It wasn't until 1834 that three Englishmen from New Zealand and their Maori wives settled and set up a supply station for whaling ships. These first settlers farmed the land and bred pigs and goats from feral stocks that previous seafarers had released on the island. In 1842, a retired British officer bought out these original settlers and ramped up the whaling supply operations. Among his first employees were Thomas and Margaret Andrews, my great-great great-grandparents, who went there as servants. A few years later, they were permanent settlers and had a daughter named Mary. In 1849, Lord Howe was home to just 11 people, and they farmed the land and traded produce with visiting whalers. Thomas Andrews died in 1860, but the Andrews family soon had a new patriarch in whaling captain Thomas Nichols. He hailed from Hobart and arrived on Lord Howe in July 1862. He soon after married young Mary Andrews. They were to have nine surviving children. By then, the island had another pioneer, an American named Nathan Chase Thompson, who arrived in 1853 on a whaling ship and stayed. Nathan's second wife, Bogue, from Kiribati, would bear him five children, with their daughter Mary marrying Thomas Wilson, who was appointed the island's first schoolteacher in 1879. Most islanders thereafter would be, and still are, related by blood or by marriage to the Nichols-Andrews and Thompson-Wilson families. 
As whaling declined, ships calling into Lord Howe became fewer and the island economy depended on red onion and then Kentia palm seed exports. Tourism began as a trickle with the introduction of steamer services in the 1890s. The Nichols family added a few rooms to their home, The Pines, for the use of tourists in 1900. The Wilson-Thompson clan started their guest house, Ocean View, in 1909. So there was some accommodation, but only visitors with a lot of time on their hands could risk a Lord Howe Island getaway. In November 1903, the Sydney Morning Herald reported, quote, Lord Howe Island would undoubtedly become a great tourist resort. However, there is always a risk of bad weather preventing communications with the steamer, thereby enforcing an additional month's stay upon the island. The reason for this interest right then was that the steamer Overlau had caught fire in one of its holds 100 miles off Lord Howe. The ship made it to the island where passengers and crew were safely evacuated before an explosion sank the vessel. Given Lord Howe's remoteness and that it was only accessible then by sea, it's not surprising that numerous ships had been damaged or wrecked on its rocks and reefs. That said, the known death toll was remarkably low, at least in and around Lord Howe Island itself. But things were very different up at Middleton Reef. Though part of the same ocean rise as Lord Howe, Middleton and adjoining Elizabeth Reef are actually 95 to 130 miles north across open sea. Completely submerged at high tide, the reefs are almost undetectable to the naked eye, even in the middle of the day. Which is why more than 100 ships have met their fate there. The majority of these wrecks are still unidentified. But the worst disaster on record happened on the 18th of June 1909. That was when the Errol, a bark of some 1,400 tonnes, which was three months into its voyage from the west coast of South America to Newcastle, smashed into Middleton Reef at midnight. There were 22 people aboard, including the captain's wife and their four young children. Errol survivors would shelter in their wrecked boat and in another battered hull that was stuck on the reef. For the next month, they battled the sea, salt, starvation, sharks and their own psychoses. Just five would live to tell the tale, the survivor accounts only raising further questions about what had really happened out there. I'm telling this forgotten story in detail in this month's bonus episode called The Wreck of the Errol. But for this episode, what we need to know is that if your ship got lost in waters around Lord Howe Island and drifted north, it was possible to survive against all the odds at Middleton and Elizabeth Reefs. In terms of ongoing devastation, the worst Lord Howe Island shipwreck was the steamer Macambo, the Marinda's predecessor, which ran aground near Ned's Beach on the north of the island in June 1918. One woman drowned during the evacuation. It was nine days before Macambo was repaired and refloated. During that time, black rats escaped, came ashore and thrived by eating birds and insects that had never faced such predators. Numerous species would become extinct and, a century on, even after the recent rat eradication program, they're still being found on the island. But the sea tragedy that affected Lord Howe Island's people most immediately and most deeply on a personal level happened 40 years after settlement. With the decline of the whaling trade, the island's own 22-tonne catch, the Sylph, became Lord Howe's vital link with the mainland. 
About twice a year from 1867, Silph took people and produce to Sydney and brought back new settlers and supplies. A huge article about Lord Howe in the Sydney Morning Herald in June 1869 described Silph and simply remarked, quote, This means of transit is inadequate. But the Lord Howe Islanders had no other choice at that time. That Sydney Morning Herald article also listed the permanent male residents, including their ages, occupations, land under cultivation, the names of their spouses, how many children they had, and how long they'd lived on Lord Howe. The population was so small, just 40-odd souls, that this mini-census fit into one quarter of a column. Sylph was co-owned by Nathan Thompson, who we've heard about. Also with a stake was William Field, another mariner originally from America, who'd been resident since 1855 with his wife Mary. The third owner, Henry Wainwright, was a carpenter from London who'd arrived in 1868. On the 2nd of May 1873, Sylph was off on its latest voyage to Sydney. It carried eight tonnes of cargo, including onions, potatoes and maize. Sylph was under the command of Captain James Crawford, who had two boys as crew, one named Alfred Williams and the other known to history only as Dan. There were five passengers. Sylph's co-owner, William Field, was aboard. So was Jane Wainwright, wife of the other co-owner, and she was taking their two sons to school on the mainland. Also aboard was Thomas Mooney, who'd lived on Lord Howe for six years with his wife Mary and their three children. So all up, eight people from a community which by 1873 probably numbered about 60. These departures were a big deal, and the island's people gathered to wave off their loved ones, and they watched Sylph become a dot and then disappear over the horizon. Two days later, a northwest gale of unusual violence engulfed Lord Howe. And this had the islanders worried. They had no way of knowing whether Sylph was still safely on its way to Sydney. They also knew they wouldn't have any sort of answer for at least a month until Sylph returned. But as one month became two and then three, islanders feared the worst. They also hoped for the best. For all they knew, unfavourable conditions might have meant it had taken Sylph two or three weeks just to reach Sydney. Captain James Crawford might have got stuck there, maybe due to bad weather out of Sydney or because Sylph needed to be repaired. For all the islanders knew, the Russians might have invaded Sydney and that was the reason Sylph hadn't come back yet. All they could do during those months was keep watching the horizon. Nearly four months after Sylph left, on the 21st of August 1873, Captain Thomas Nichols sailed for Sydney in the 30-tonne catch Comet. Also aboard were his wife Mary and one of their children. Likely this was their eldest boy Albert, then nine, and later to be Titanic's boson. Comet's other passengers included Thomas's sister-in-law and three men. So, all up, eight souls. Soon after leaving Lord Howe, Comet was caught in a gale that lasted three long days. After that, it was clear sailing in good weather. Arriving in Sydney, Captain Nichols confirmed the worst. As Empire newspaper reported on the 4th of September, the catch comet from Howes Island came in yesterday morning and from what she reports regarding the departure of the Sylph from Howes Island for Sydney, there can be little doubt that the vessel has been lost with all hands. 
The article described the storm that Captain Nichols told them had engulfed the island soon after Sylph's departure. Quote, It is surmised that the schooner must have foundered as she has not since been heard of. Eight people, a big part of Lord Howe's population, had been swallowed up by the Tasman Sea. Captain Nichols, Mary and the others aboard Comet were all aware of the risks. That meant they knew if their luck had run the other way during that gale, they might also have disappeared without a trace. Back on Lord Howe, people didn't forget those who'd been lost on Sylph. But disappearance at sea wasn't like mourning any other sort of death. Perhaps the worst thing was the hope. Hope that they weren't really dead. That somehow they'd survived and would come sailing home. Recalling the Sylph story in November 1936, when Lord Howe Island was all over the newspapers, the Sun told readers, quote, Wainwright, who clung to the belief that it would return someday, kept a constant lookout from the point between two pines. Years later, when he was dying, he asked that he might be buried at the spot where he had seen the ship vanish. That last wish was fulfilled. Mrs Mooney became a tragic figure on the island. Night after night, she paced the beach, distraught. Eventually, hope died. But it didn't really, even after she married again. The story went that Mary Mooney had actually signed that second wedding certificate with an X in the belief that it would perhaps be invalid if and when her husband returned. Captain Field's wife Mary didn't remarry and she lived for the next quarter of a century on the island as a pitiful, grieving figure. From the time of the Sylph and well into the 20th century, Lord Howe Island didn't change in the way that the mainland did. There was no telegraph, no telephones, no motor cars, no radio stations and no moving picture shows. But after the Great War, when German raiders were no longer a threat, regular steamship services did make tourism more viable. By the early 1920s, the island could accommodate about 60 guests between the ocean view and the pines. People went to Lord Howe to get away from the world. A writer for Brisbane Sunday Mail put it this way in March 1936, quote, No words can describe the quiet charm of this wondrous little island. Lord Howe is indeed a haven of rest. There is no hustle, no bustle, just perfect peace and quietness, where the islanders live close to nature and the tourist enjoys that perfect rest which is not to be had where commercialism has run mad, where motors hum, horns toot and talkies screech and where people jazz into the early hours of the morning. It was amusing that this scribe should mention the screeching talkies because in September 1936 the Mystery Island people were going to Lord Howe Island to shoot one. Unlikely as it might seem, given what we've heard, the islanders actually did already have experience with movie making, albeit of a documentary nature. In 1932, famous photographer and filmmaker Frank Hurley showcased Lord Howe Island in a 20-minute travelogue called Jewel of the Pacific. The film was as much about the people as it was about the place. Scenes showed the horse sledges used to get around, a couple of ladies hunting rats for the sixpence bounty they brought, and a climbing trek up Mount Gower, whose participants included my mischievous grandfather, Mick Nichols. Frank Hurley made the movie with the assistance and the friendship of the Lord Howe Island people, and he'd be a regular visitor in the future. 
In September 1936, the islanders were ready to extend that same help and hospitality to the people making Mystery Island. They'd also offer advice based on generations of living on a speck of land that was truly girt by dangerous sea. But when it mattered most, Brian Abbott wouldn't listen. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to the special Forgotten Australia series, The Mysteries of Mystery Island. Part 3 will be released next Monday. But Forgotten Australia supporters can hear the whole story right now. And supporters in July and August will also be able to access two bonus shows that relate to this episode. So to become a supporter and to help me keep making Forgotten Australia, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia, and this link is also in your show notes. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.